When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast. Haven to fragile artistic types too tender to experience the real world. Today we're talking about creatives that select class designated by society as the source of all art. Is this still really a thing? Are rules different for artists? Are we in fact all artists, but only to different degrees? I'm Mark Lintemeyer, a workaday man with head only in the clouds of my own workaday sweat. I'm Brian Hurt, living my life like it's performance art for half a century now. My name is Amir Zaki. I am an artist, photographer, and I teach at UC Riverside. I'm John Andrew Frederick. I'm a songwriter and a novelist and I'm happily out of academia. Ah, you were an English prof until recently? Are you just retired? For 25 painstaking, arduous years. Yeah, absolutely. I'm jealous. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I thank the Lord Jesus, Buddha, Krishna every day that I don't have to deal with stuff that you still have to deal with, Amir. I'm like, I just want to, in our initial exchanges, just say you have all my sympathy and empathy as well. <laughs> thank you. Hang in there until you can get out, mate. So have you elevated to doing your music full time? Is that what we're, that would be relevant to our topic? I don't know. I mean, you define full time, Mark. <laughs> let's get let's get into the nitpicky part of this. Yeah, sure. I play a lot of tennis as well. So there. Oh, you me go. too. Good. All right. Let's hit sometime. Well, John, you're the you're the one who suggested rather cryptically, I should say. <laughs> of course. I mean, it's just it's with some. I mean, if you want to start this off, Mark, then go right ahead. But it's with some no small amount of derision that I look at the term creative. I'll start off with something rather controversial, or maybe it's not anymore because it's a term that's just become so accepted. Nobody blinks anymore. But I, I view it as obviously a nominalization of a term that suggests a kind of an encroachment upon what I do. Now, why is it that everybody wants to be an artist is a larger philosophical question, kind of, as well. It's possibly born out of a certain sort of naivete in a world that's obviously technologically so far advanced that anybody can advance themselves to candidacy, to use a very academicish kind of term, as an artist. You know, So when this term emerged, I sort of bristled a little bit the first time I can think. It was on the tennis court. When I, the first time I ever heard the term creative I was playing with somebody I'd just met who said, well, you know, he's in the record industry as half the people swing a dead armadillo and hit a million of them here in Los Angeles. But in the changeover of, of a set, this guy said, well, you know, I've been on the business side of music, but now I really feel as though I'm a creative. I know somewhere deep inside I'm a creative. And I just thought, oh, wow, here's a neologism that I'm going to have an issue with. Because I have an issue with so many things. Modern, you know, that's for sure. But I wondered, why is it that this term emerged? As I said, I could theorize that it comes from people wanting to be something, perhaps that society has glorified necessarily or unnecessarily. I don't know. So anyway, that's my opening salvo. 
So I was then, when you threw that via a half a sentence that was forwarded to me from your publicity person, I called Brian. We've been looking for some episode to get Brian back on. You said, this topic needs work. Do you have an opening thought of where you thought this was going to go, what you want to get out of today? I do, but I'd rather respond to John if I could, because I think that we originally were talking about something a little broader, you and I, Mark, but this idea of creative specifically as a thing or as a term, maybe it really is a very Los Angeles thing, John. I don't know. That's the first time I heard it as well, was talking to somebody in the TV and movie business. And and I can see why, from a very business standpoint, it exists. And there are people who create, and then everyone else exists to get their hands on it and change or ruin what it is in the movie-making business. It didn't make me bristle the way it did you, but it seems very icky and maybe a little transactional more than anything else. I feel like if you are an artist, you're actually someone who is creating art. If you are a creative, you are someone who is creating something. Content. And what that something (laughs) is, who the hell can say, right? I mean, it's I've already had my coffee, so I've created something today, right? So, I mean, what is that term? We did get Mark into some bigger issues about not just what the term creative might mean, but also what the term artist is and what it implies and what is art and what does that imply. And of course, we can get so big as to completely lose all focus. So I'm fine staying narrow on this discussion. Very interested to hear also what Amir has to say about this. It's pretty interesting because I guess I don't hear that very much. I think that might not that term creative. I have to do a lot of social things with art openings and things like that. And other artists that I know don't ever, ever refer to themselves that way. I've certainly never used the term. I think it might be something, oddly enough, used by people who aren't artists. On the flip side, as someone who's been teaching a long time, I certainly have many, many, many students who come in to a classroom with this idea that they are not artists. And that makes me bristle worse because it's not a superpower. It's also not sort of natural in a lot of people. I never made art growing up. None, nobody in my family was an artist. When I picked up a camera and started making pictures. I understood something about You were going to say something clicked. that you. I almost <laughs> did. I did that before. You're right. I hesitated. It is this thing about a sustained observation and, and work and process. So it isn't mysterious. So I do think a lot of people genuinely could be artists who don't think they are because they grow up in a place that absolutely does not reward that kind of thinking or cultivate that kind of thinking zero basically until college. I mean, I went to my daughter's high school, back to school in her art class. And I mean, I shouldn't say much, but it's grim. I mean, art up until college is grim. The attitudes or the work itself? The way they teach it. No, no, the way they teach it. I looked at those student paintings and they were all shit. (laughs) Pretty much, actually. I mean, that's the truth is that they have the capacity to teach way more sophisticated work than they do. And uh, they just don't. For the most part. So if you assert that it's not a mystery, the making of art, the production of it, the generation of it, et cetera, whatever. And you guys, this might also, this term might be this sort of generational thing because you hear the term, well, I'm a creative, a lot more from the millennial group than you would necessarily from somebody in our demographic. Sure. But how do you account for then the fact that so many interviews are conducted where the interviewers 
ostensibly trying to get at the mystery of how, I mean, how many times have artists been asked, how did you come up with this? Even to put it in formulaic terms, what's your formula? What's your secret? I can't remember. It was one of these two Francines, either Francine Prose, the novelist, or Francine Duplessis Gray, a historical novelist. I can't remember. It was maybe a David Frost show where he kept trying to have a go at her to say, how do you write? How do you do this? And she adamantly, if not aggressively, refused to answer the question and said, stop probing me. Don't try to get at my little treasure trove of inspiration and replication of what's inside of me. So how do you account for the fact that the general public or intellectuals, etc., who aren't artists, but who love art, seemingly and perpetually try to get at what the person's secret is? And I, and I bristle with that as well, of going, not only do I not know how these things come about, other than the fact that I'm a god upon this earth, um, <laughs> but also, I don't want to know. I don't really want to know. I think that will spoil it somehow. You know, I mean, it's like saying, okay, well, how do you define being in love with someone or, yeah. or love itself? How would you respond to that notion of that, that it really is a mysterious process? Maybe you're talking as a photographer, you're talking about, you know, technological stuff too. There's a little bit less mystery involved in that because you've got an apparatus on your side, but so do I. It's a great question. So basically, this just came up. I get interviewed from time to time and written or whatever. And this this question about what inspires you, that question has driven me crazy forever. I hate it. I usually answer it in a really glib way. I answer it in a sarcastic way. And um, this time, I decided to engage with it. I actually texted my friend who's... Uh, a long time Zen, he's a teacher, a Zen teacher. And, and I said, I feel like I should approach this like a koan, like really take it seriously. Why do you resent the question? Because it seems facile and it also seems like a gigantic misunderstanding. But I think it's because it actually, we don't know. And so part of it is that we don't know. I really took it sincerely and I slept on it and I came up with some clever answers that I didn't like. And I finally... The most honest thing I could come up with was what inspires me is finding potential or seeing potential. And I can make that really broad or I can make that specific. But really, it's as someone who's observing the world and capturing parts of it, it's really about identifying potential, something that can become something else. I don't think that's particularly mysterious but it might be a little bit abstract if you just don't practice doing that. I mean, that's the other thing is that it's a process and a practice. You know, we talked about tennis, like being a tennis player means you play tennis a lot. Right. Nobody says, what's the secret? <laughs> what is your secret of tennis? Well, I like tennis and I did it. Au contraire, there are many, many, many YouTube tutorials that purport to try to tell you how to get yourself in mental shape to, right. to win and or technology because it's an incredibly technical sport. So. But how do you actually become a good tennis player? You just play tennis a lot. I would wonder, Amir, if someone was hoping for an answer that was either going to be useful or insightful, you might not have satisfied them. Giving an honest answer, hopefully satisfactory to you. And if they're no closer to understanding either how you do it or how they might do it, well, that's too bad for them. I mean, that you could yeah. get a, an honest answer or a helpful answer, but maybe you can't get both. I did not realize this was going to turn into an implicit critique of my uh, nakedly examined music interviewing process. But I feel like John was on that show and he had plenty to say 
what I take insulting if somebody just asks in general, you know, especially a non-artist, like, what's your process? What's your secret? Is that they're not being specific. You know, when yes. I got John on and like, we played this song, I made you listen to this song right before we got on the call. And then I said, what was going on? What inspired this song? You might not remember. It might be from some years ago, but if it's something in the last year, then what was your process in coming up with that riff or whatever is something that is answerable. In fact, it's a very mundane answer. It's not a secret answer. It's either, well, every day I go down and I screw around on my guitar and like I come up with these riffs and I record them on my phone. And this is one that I came back. Like it's of something very concrete like that. And that's why I feel like that is like tennis. Yes, of course, there are lots of techniques. And when you get it, you know, into a master class level, there's different like, oh, what can I do to get the perfect backhand or whatever? And there's lots of things like that in every art. The more complex the art, the more little tricks like that that you could get from people. But for the most part, it is, as Amir said, simply do it a lot and you stumble on things. People's capacities to do it certainly differ, but it is a path that anybody could start. That's why I brought Amir in here that we talked about photography last time and how adjacent photography is to everyday experience. That everybody has a phone. You can sort of start actually paying attention to the composition of your pictures, watch a YouTube tutorial, do something to become more artistic rather than merely snapping that it's a record that you are at some place. But the suggestion in that is the longer a person does something like engages in songwriting or photography or painting or drawing or writing fiction, that perhaps all they have to do is continue to do it for put in the work, do it for a long time and something truly artistic will emerge from it. And there's lots of you know evidence all over everywhere to suggest that's not the case. You could call it art, but there's good art and bad art. So, I mean, and that's obviously... Who was it? Which of you guys wrote the thing about how commerce determines what's art? Amir, was that you? Or yeah, Brian? something about you? NFTs. Yeah, NFTs. Yeah, that's, again, a neologism or acronym that I'm, well, I don't want to know about as well. <laughs> and apropos of like, you don't, you don't want to know how much money I put into my backhand here, you guys, from expensive tennis coaches. Uh, John, you just mentioned bad art. Is bad art art? Are we making that allowance? I suppose it is. Like You'd have to say to create something out of nothing. This is why I, I'm equally rattled by another Los Angeles reference here where you know not only am I surrounded by creatives, but also actors. So when an actor describes what he or she does as they're an artist, I mean, again, maybe it sounds defensive and uber-traditionalist or whatever. I think oh, I want to ask them, okay, what did you create out of nothing? And, you know, again, I'll be referred to as a hickory stick, as, as a fuddy-duddy, as, as someone who, who's defensive and wants to protect. And yet again, you know, one of you guys, I think it was Amir, it was you, talked about the workmanlike element of creating art that I don't consider, I was joking when I said that I'm a god upon this earth because I make something out of nothing or what have you. But I also think that there is an incredible craftsmanship element that comes into that. I wouldn't deny that. But back to the what you said, Amir, the mere fact that you said that you hated that question of what your influences are suggests that there is a kind of a hostility in the interviewer's reporter's query to say, like, where does this come from? As if to say that, you, you know, you could be poked and prodded to divulge the secret to what you do. And of course, that's invasive on some level. But then again, you know, I'm a reactionary. So what are you going to do? 
I see it more as maybe a naivete and completely non-judgmental in that sense, is that someone who maybe they are an artist, but just don't work in that field. And they really don't have an understanding of where it comes from or what the process is. And John, you might appreciate this being asked ever, where do you get your ideas? To be asked that as a writer, I don't think people are really expecting any kind of great insights, but it truly is the sort of thing that that's not something that they're able to do. And they really are curious. And to give an answer that's short would be meaningless. And one that would is long would be impenetrable. You know, you know where you get yours. And I think anyone who writes knows where they get theirs. And that's that's fine. It's all stolen. All of my sci-fi book ideas <laughs> Brian said, are completely It's all stolen. Beowulf, right? I mean, that's how I got my idea. <laughs> no, but I think that you're hitting on something, like Brian, that for me personally, when I get asked that question, perhaps what sets me off is maybe not this personal one interaction with someone asking me that. It's maybe the fact that I'm continually reminded that as a culture, it seems like the vast majority of people don't understand what making art is like or what being an artist is like. And it's not that it's so special. It's that it's, that it's not taught. It's not something that we understand very well. Certainly don't understand the history of art. I mean, it's like learning a language. So I think it's partly a resentment about having to answer questions that seem kind of dopey. I'm just trying to think of some other example. You know, if they were interviewing someone in any other field, like Mark said, they would ask a more specific question. What is it about this particular project when you did XYZ was inspiring to you? The vague, what inspires you, what moves you, just sound like they didn't do their homework. They didn't even look at your fucking website. You know what I mean? Like they didn't look at your work. They didn't think 10 seconds about, oh, this person is making work that is, uh, has this subject matter. What is it about this? You know, that would be light years ahead of the question, you know, what inspires you? Where'd you get the idea that you can teach someone to be an artist just because you teach photography? I would never presume to say I could ever teach someone how to write a song or write a short story, or certainly not a novel. I taught creative writing the entire time, just kind of snickering up my sleeve and or cringing at myself, even presuming to do such a thing. Is it because of your medium? No, not at all. I think what you can't teach is self-motivation. This is the struggle of teaching. The artist part is just like, I feel like a recognition of, they have to feel less self-conscious. They have to feel like their ideas are interesting. They have to feel like they know how to do something, write a draft, look at the draft and make changes. Same as writing, make pictures. They look at them and eh, that's not good. They have to be self-critical. You can't teach self-motivation. You can't teach self-criticality. Those things seem to be things that are cultivated from when they're very little. I mean, I have kids. It's, it definitely comes from... But you can that. teach that they're necessary. And hopefully get that it. <laughs> Well, I mean, say you, it till that's you're blue, part of but, the process, right? Yeah. That it's hard work and that, you know, Stephen King talks about that all the time, that talent isn't what gets his books written. It's, it's hard work that gets those books written. And I think that's probably true of any creative medium, that it's a lot of toil. And if you're not willing to do that, and I think, John, you were talking about, you just can't expect to practice and become an artist or start creating good art. But if you can learn the concept of deliberate practice, where you are always being critical and looking at ways, you know, specifically to improve and hopefully going through a cycle where you are leveling up on occasion, you really can hopefully get from bad art to good art. Stephen King even thinks about the subconscious as being workmanlike. 
you know, he's used this analogy, I think, in stories. Like you set the workmen that are going on inside you, you kind of set them up with a task. You're, you know, you're doing your daily writing thing. And then, you know, you go watch the game or whatever. And the workmen continue so that then that's where inspiration comes from. It's not just that you wander around looking at the sky, you know, maybe unless looking at the sky is your, your method, that there are ways that we are dealing with ourselves. Oh, we creatives with our turbulent insides that we have to manage that as if it were a group of lions or something and somehow get them to produce. How many metaphors can I mix here? Get them to produce the gold that you want. Mark, I'm going to back up and ask you to. Expand a little bit on this stereotype that you have. You keep talking about this fragile artistic type. You've used the word tender. You affect this tone in your voice. What artist exactly are you envisioning? I didn't get to do an intro. I look at this through my own lens that I have felt from a very young age. Oh, I can't be made to do a real job. I'll wither up, you know, and I've worked in an office for five years for, you know, and I, it's good that I don't have to do that in a group of people in cubicles anymore because I would fall asleep and play video games and I should just do that stuff at home. So I feel like I don't know that I have the talent to warrant that kind of treatment. I hope I do. I keep creating, but I have a temperament such that, and I know other people like this so that I, I kind of wish that I lived in medieval times or whatever, where it would be, you know, yes, I might be the servant of the king and produced to his, uh, to his whims, but I would be given some sort of ability to frolic freely. And the age of the artist who has to economically justify himself and say, hey, if what you're doing is valuable, that means other people should have to pay for it, should be willing to pay for it. That's a very high price to exact from any artist, even a really unquestionably talented artist. And so, you know, those of us who are merely self-motivated have an even tougher time with that. Wow. (laughs) I didn't mean to say this is my therapy session that we're going to do today now, but just in terms of just to reframe. So I feel like we older folks have the advantage and maybe this has happened differently in different arts, but in music, the punk revolution was a big thing. So that before the punk revolution, It was like you study music in school, or even if you are a a rock and roller, you can tell who the the people with the powerful voices, they're not operatic singers, they have their own kind of quality, but still Robert Plant is like an amazing, objectively amazing singer, and it's the same with really good guitarists and things. But punk came along the late 70s, the the mid-70s, and said, no, you don't have to do any of that. You just have to kind of have an attitude and have fun, and that is a new way of creating, right? I interviewed somebody from the Mekons which is a punk group that was just a bunch of art school students. They didn't even play instruments and they would get together and just make musical sounds. And eventually, you know, they got better in a traditional way, but that was tremendously freeing. They say about the Velvet Underground, everybody who heard the Velvet Underground started a band. So I thought, Amir, in talking to you about photography, that there was something similar, just, you know, in the fact that everybody has a phone, there was an entryway in which like, if you just thought music was opera, then there's no... There is a definite distinction between the creatives and then the normal people. And I feel like society was never the same once we opened that up. But it sounds like, John, maybe you'd think that all those people are just pretenders and they're not producing good art. They're just keeping emitting crap is not, you know, doesn't actually get you anywhere. Whereas I feel like keep working at it. I would take issue a little bit with this notion of exalting, even though I made this joke of exalting artists beyond the pale of regular Joes and Janes and Josephinas. Brian, you brought up something that made me think about how 
artists are held in such high regard that it almost in a reverberation sort of way creates a kind of animosity towards us. Any of you guys ever read any Karen Hornet? She was a great psychologist who was a contemporary of Freud. She talks about how in relationships where somebody feels as though in a relationship, like love relationship, so much more above the person, you look up to this person, only for so long can that sort of symbiotic, weirdly symbiotic relationship carry on until resentment sets in. So the mere fact that people do look at artists as these people with a kind of divine inspiration or a gift, like, well, you know, they were just born with it. Jimi Hendrix just saw a guitar and automatically, instantaneously knew how to play it, that that kind of sets up a situation where this prodding, etc., and or encroachment, like what I was talking about in relation to the creatives term, will just be an eventuality. I wanted to respond to, to this parallel that Mark's making between maybe music and photography, especially because how populist both things are. But the punk thing is a very good starting point. So I think that the parallel would be if everybody with cell phones, not if everybody, if a subset of people with cell phones who know they can take pictures of the same thing over and over again, smashed them and did something actually interesting. I think the distinction is that whatever these movements are in music that are revolutionary, they're thinking about what they're doing. Whether they're playing instruments with no instruments, they're thinking about that. They're reflecting so the fact that billions and billions of people are making the same pictures. Do you know any photog serious photographers who, in the advent of the iPhone 12 or whatever, who've gone, what's the point now? When everybody can take a picture that rivals something by filling your favorite photographer yeah. here. Do you know any? Because uh, I do. I know a few who've just said, my medium's just been smithereened as a result of technology. Do you know anybody like that? Or does that ever get you down to think? gosh, any, you know, monkey flying a spaceship kind of motif. It kind of raises the stakes a little bit. Everyone responds to it differently. I think that some set of photographers are certainly moving into images that are meant to be seen on a screen. I'm not particularly one of them, although I do make, so I have parallel practice. I, I make a ridiculous amount of photographs on my phone. It's actually a liability. I'm constantly taking pictures of things I should probably just be experiencing. That aside, my work work is more and more pushing toward how it feels and affects one's body in real space and time, the print, the photographic print. So I make incredibly high resolution images that are printed really large. And when you see them in person, it's a completely different experience than on a screen. So I'm, for me, I felt like the stakes have been raised if, if I want to play that game about when you stand in front of a beautiful abstract painting and you feel it in your marrow. That's what I want to do with images as objects, not as, you know, but yeah, I mean, I don't know anybody particularly who's sort of given up because of it. You could also aver that they were meant to stop anyway. Sure. And maybe that's an excuse. And because this squares with Mark, where you were talking about reaching an audience with your music, right? For instance, if Jove in the clouds came down and said, Look, sorry, mate, you're not going to be able to, you're not going to reach anybody. You know, do you want to carry on making music? I'm going to guess that you're going to say, yeah, I'd still do it. I periodically retire and then, uh, you know, I haven't put out an <laughs> album for four years, but, you know, now I'm writing songs again. So it really just, yeah, no, it's just how strong is the narcissism at that point? 
But I want to bring in Brian, you know, not only because he was, you know, a longtime co-host of the show, but as spending more and more of your time on the writing, writing with your brother and producing these, like a whole manuscript, then like, well, maybe nobody will see it. Maybe this will just be, you know, the practice one because none of the publishers picked it up and, and we'll just move on to the next one. What is your reaction from your experience to these points that have been made, you know, regarding sort of the punk revolution, the barriers to entry and reaching an audience, et cetera? You know, John is a writer also, as have you, Mark, written a book back in your early days. Where we are right now, certainly in the publishing world, there are these two parallel and very different paths to reaching an audience, right? And there's the one where you write a book and you promote it and you spend all that time doing it. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. And it's really been a successful path for some. It's just not the one that Ken and I have chosen. We are choosing to go the more traditional path of working with an agent and publishers. And, you know, hopefully we'll get there. And, you know, we've had success with short stories and we'll keep going on this. I think you do definitely have to separate your creative self from your business self because they're going to make some decisions that are incompatible with each other. For example, the business self says, don't write a sequel to a book that isn't published yet. The creative self says, this book is so good. I know it's going to get published. It's the best property I have. It's the most conducive to writing that sequel. It's how I want to spend my time. It's where I'm feeling my creative impulses and energies. So I should do it. Those are fine for those things to be different. You got to square them at some point and decide what you're doing next. So as I've mentioned, (laughs) I'm already... In my 50s, I don't have the amount of time left that I would if I were actually got my shit together in my 20s. I think I'm a much better writer now than I am then. So I'll just figure it out. But, you know, that's a very personal answer just for me. I hope to generalize that anybody who is creating art or creating something that they hope is art is able to look at it from these different perspectives and can view what they're doing from the non-artist standpoint. Because if you treat it like it's your children, you're, I think, always going to be a little too precious with what you're creating. And some of what you create is just garbage. It's going to be, no matter how good you are. And you have to be able to let it go in a way that you would never let your children go. Is it the business person in you who's, who's deciding if it's any good or not? I hope that my judgment of whether something is good or not will be enough to get something out the door so that others will at least have an opportunity to judge that for themselves. Amir, I've always figured that if I write something that I like, there will be an audience for it. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And so be it. I am not going to Brian, that's spoken like a true artist right there. (laughs) To say it really is. I agree. I don't ever think about what other people will wonder about what I do. I mean, obviously you want money and recognition and praise and all of the above. But I, you know, I've been asked before, well, do you think about the listener or do you think about the reader? Never once ever do I do that. That seems like a mad quest to go on. Who is this average or really intelligent reader or listener any old way? Well, is that different, John, for the different for music versus the books for you? Like for music, it was always maybe not like when I'm writing this individual song, I'm like, are people going to like this chord? You know, it's my own editor brain. That's part of, you know, you got your unconscious creative part and you got your super ego editor part. And both of those, that's how you create stuff. Like you'd just be sprawling, you know, Sid Barrett or whatever. If you didn't have the editor part, you'd have a brain deficit. You would not actually follow through and finish anything. If you merely, maybe you can be a jazz guy 
and show up and just emit the art and you don't have to worry about any like packaging it or anything, but everybody else. But you know, once I have songs written or something, when it's like, are we going to put this in the set? Are we going to put this on the album? Like, of course, decisions of, is this a coherent thing? What audience are we aiming at? You know, something like the economic brain. It's just, I don't think, I don't see maybe it's different for Brian specific, you know, is this going to be saleable? It seems like they are related that I guess that idea of coherence, right? Am I going to put all these songs on the same album and create a coherent product and something that somebody can actually get a hold of as opposed to they're all my children and I must just include all of them? I want to play devil's advocate if I can about this because I was finding myself nodding in agreement to both Brian and John about what they were saying, then not in a way because. So I often have this issue with students where they, they make something and they come into the classroom and they show it. And basically their justification is, well, I just liked it or I made it for myself. And this is a big problem because there is a negotiation. And I wouldn't say it's a business one exactly, but I think it's much more about like, it is a shared language. If I'm making this thing and actually putting in the world, I do want to have a conversation. I do want somebody who sees it to think it's good for one thing, but I also want there to be some kind of conversation or back and forth or bring something to the table. If I'm simply, you know, in my basement making something for myself, there's just nothing at stake because there's no dialogue with the public. I guess I, I wonder if what you both were saying was if I'm making a, a straw man out of it and I don't mean to, I just want to flush this out. What you're implying, Brian, is that you are the most important audience for your work, making the assumption that you've cultivated a love of art and a deep knowledge of it, that you wouldn't presume to be an artist, that elevated, you know, sacred term without having done the background of mirror that you're talking about, of being versed in something, that your rightful suspicion of studenty kind of stuff going, kid, wait till you get some more, you know, like we talk about influences. Okay, well, take a look at all of my life since yeah, I yeah. was, you know, like since I first heard a song or whatever, or first a book was read to me and everything I went through. I think that both of those things really necessarily come into play, but I think the twain shall meet. And to make a finer distinction, maybe on what Amir was keying in on, it's liking something as the artist who created it versus liking something as an audience of one. And as a writer, I'm also a reader and I know what I like. I'm writing for myself as the first audience. So it forces you to do something, as you say, Mark, that is coherent, that holds up. If it was just something, oh, this was fun to create, but it doesn't hold up as a product. It still has to work for me as a consumer, thinking that if it does for me, it likely will resonate with others. There are untold millions of people who are literate who could read it. Certainly someone's going to like it as a reader if I do. I don't know if that's a distinction without a difference from your perspective, Amir, but... Right, for sure. But I, I li- but I like it. I like that leap of faith. And you just kind of go, okay, look, well, you know, the pleasure of creating something is really the most important thing. We're all going to die. And you can't take your reviews with you or your royalty checks, however paltry they might be. You know, so the mere fact that you take pleasure in that, you know, Nabokov, they asked him, you know, why do you write for the pleasure of writing? I mean, I think that that's an incredibly valid response to it, too. It was at a panel that Ben Bova, the 
science fiction writer was giving. And he was asked at one point whether it wasn't his job as a science fiction writer to predict the future. He said, no, it's my job as a science fiction writer to feed my family. And I have this luxury where it really isn't my job to feed my family, at least not from writing science fiction. I have another job that pays the bills. So it's a true luxury to be able to take that leap of faith when you don't have to wonder if your ability to put shoes on your kid's feet depends on whether your art sells or not. I think that's super important to realize. I feel very similar about it. I recognize how lucky I am with all that. But I see artists who do literally have to pay the bills with what they're making and you you're going to make different decisions. You're going to think about that business part. You're going to think about what sells, what you think might sell much more. This totally dovetails with another conversation that, Mark, you could get a different panel for this one of how success could be the ruination of certain people. You look at, you know, maybe some people that you admire early on in their career, whose work later on, you know, turns to mush just because they had a massive audience for what they did. Wes Anderson, about whom I wrote a book called Fucking Innocent, early films, because those are the only ones that I rate, the first three. I think that everything he's done since Tannenbaum is absolute rubbish. I would advance him as an example of, wow, this guy got way too big for his talent. Anyway, but that's a corollary discussion. I also see in musicians, you know, if they had a big hit, if they were like, you know, really something in the 90s or the 80s or whenever it was, and then as happens, fashions change. They don't have the major label thing anymore. A lot of them just stop producing as opposed to somebody like you, John, who just was sort of self-motivated throughout Never had that Fans huge success. That big hit and so, and so I had on but, his foolish errand. I really admire the artists. Like I just talked to Robin Hitchcock, who had some success, you know, in the 80s, had a member of REM in the band opening for them. Like, but then like just didn't slow down at all. Like it's clearly that's not why he was doing it. So having that sort of internal resourcefulness, I know that's not what you what you were talking about, John, in terms of being praised too much and given too much money, and that's the sort of Brian Wilson being driven to what's the uh, is it the Dewey Cox story where there's a sort of parody of of some of these I believe I'm thinking of the right film where you know, he's just having a conversation with somebody this personal conversation and it turns and they look and there's like a whole studio full of people that are just sitting there waiting for as if the auteur you know will finally grace us that this is clearly there's a, such a thing as too much success I think it's a related phenomenon though to have enough success that then, well, I'm not getting the millions of fans that I was before, so why even bother? Mark, to ask Robin about why he continues to you know, be so prolific with such little remuneration for album after album, I can imagine that he wouldn't take kindly to, to I've, that. I've asked other people similar things, like, but you can ask it in a nice way. Oh, it's so great that you're so self-motivated in this way. I recall an interview with Paul Simon, you know, after Graceland came out, I think he was on Letterman or something. And it was like, oh, how is it, you know, that you've got this big comeback? And he just denied the question. Like, I don't care. I just produce stuff on an ongoing basis. It's great that this particular album was selling a lot. He's a guy who's they say he locks himself in a room for two hours every day and writes, talk about your workmanlike approach to things. I mean, God bless him for doing that. If that's what, how he chooses to call up whatever inspiration he's got left in the tank to mix a metaphor <laughs> to 
I want to go on the record saying I think Life Aquatic is a very good movie. So just uh... <laughs> all right, we're not. Gonna, I'm not going to fight you, Amir. We just met. Come on over and drink a beer or have a okay, coffee I'm with just, me, and I'll tell you why you shouldn't I like know, that film. That's fine. I, no, people defend it too. I've, I've listened to their arguments. And stuff. <laughs> I don't have an argument, but I know we're we're entering the last lap here. I want to suggest that you know, as great as the punk revolution was. That making music more populist, making art more widely very populist, as you put it, Amir, I think has had the effect of actually making it completely mercantile as I'm not in a position to judge your music. In fact, I've had this with even club owners, like a very commonly I'm trying to get a show, you know, you send them the demo. They're not interested in the demo in terms of like, do I think this is a good band? Like some particular club owners, maybe they see themselves as DJs or something and like, I'm helping good music get out to the world, but mostly it's just like, how many people can you bring in? Like, I don't even care about your demo. Look how open-minded I am. I'm entirely democratic. You could be have the most fucked up art rock stuff that's ever been. As long as you can put people in the seats, it's fine with me. I will not cast judgment on your stuff. That that open-mindedness to the point of, I don't even listen anymore. I'm looking for some other metric because quality has become so pluralistic and so dispersed and so populist that there is no way that anybody can make a judgment out about anybody else's work. So we'll only pay attention to extrinsic things about it, like how much money it makes. That's been going on for quite some time now. I mean, even since the 90s. If we're going to wrap up, one thing I'd like to recommend to you guys with my tongue in my cheek isn't by me. It's by a friend of mine named John Tottenham. He's a poet here in Los Angeles, and he writes uh, for an art magazine called Artillery. Um, oh, yeah. And he's been writing a series of jeremiads about his inability to get his first novel published as a straight middle-aged white expatriate guy and the latest screed that he published was a call for people to stop encouraging their friends to make art from his own i mean and john is a very insanely articulate if not super eloquent kind of guy who's foaming at the mouth and works in a bookstore and just hates hates bad art and considers himself an accomplished poet, even though he's only published two or three little chapbooks or whatever. But for this magazine, Artillery, he's been publishing a series of, of screeds against bad art and calling for people who are friends with painters and poets and, and musicians to stop going to their gigs and stop encouraging them and telling them that, that, that their photographs are good or their short stories, you know, publishable or whatever. It's pretty funny and at once funny and very sad that he felt I haven't talked to him about it since because I'm just thinking, my gosh, you're just you're just biting the hand that hasn't fed you yet somehow. So the guy's name is John Tottenham. Look it up online, Artillery Magazine. It's a trip. They coincidentally reviewed my recent a book and my recent show. So I'm been, Artillery did? Yeah, I've been dealing okay, with it. Okay, well, then you're familiar lately, with so, it, yeah, then, Amir. Then take a look. I wanted to bring this up. I've been thinking about it sort of before we got on and the whole time. And maybe this gets to the original question about art. So I'm a drummer. I play music. I've played music since I was a teenager. I can't tell how I would answer that question. I have an undeniable answer that yes, I'm an artist, as a, I would say my medium is usually photography, video. I'm also an avid music listener. I'm mediocre at my craft with drums, self-taught and whatever. I don't think I would ever refer to myself as an artist musician. And I don't know what the distinction is. I actually do it. It's a weird one. Drummers are special. <laughs> <laughs> Having dealt with a lot of drummers, 
I've run into this just sort of getting priorities straight in my family. The proposition was set before me that what I do with music is not really any different than what other family members do with athletics. And I always thought those as very different. And part of that is just my not understanding athletics. Like that is definitely half of it. But, you know, it was also a certain pretension that I had of I'm creating things for the ages. And, you know, of course there are, you know, how many people are going to enjoy, like who's getting enjoyment out of your athletic performance? Mostly you. Drummers, though, are the link because they are mostly athletes, right? Some drummers are also songwriters, also play piano and guitar, and they're full-on musicians who happen to also play drums. But some of them are just, you have to deal with them like a whole different animal as far as a band member goes. They get all the chicks. So, you know, why, what more do you want? You want artist status as well? That's frosting to your the many-layered cake there. Like, of course, you're an artist if you're a drummer. You make something out of nothing. It contributes to something else that's a, a work of a whole. Yes, drum, drummer, yes. And you and it is athletic. And the combination of those Vades, poet, creator, and athlete, hence, get all the chicks. Vader. I, I, thought, I thought you were making the point that they also... I thought you were citing some study that they often also play sports, but you just mean drummers are athletic because they're using all four of their limbs. In their, right. In their mind. You're working way yes. harder than I am you know, <laughs> up there on I stage. <laughs> yeah. Good ones. Yes, this There's, is true. Brian, were there any last topics, any closing thoughts to, I know we've gotten into Well, we covered so few about. of our original topics <laughs> we had in too. mind. I don't know why we would, well, we would start now, Mark. <laughs> Fair enough. I feel like this had a subsection. Any final words on creatives? What have we learned about the term creative and whether we like it or not? When I'm king, they'll be abolished. Yeah, we won't, we won't have that term anymore. You won't get to pretend to be an artist or artist adjacent. Like they make advertisements for things like, well, it's an apartment that's Beverly Hills adjacent and it's in. I take the term from the opposite perspective that I feel like I am a populist and I'm surprised as somebody who does stuff adjacent to punk rock that you aren't where I am of this is I would absolutely encourage the more art we have in the world better i don't subscribe i'm just talking about the term i'm talking about the term and the and people who identify as that i'm not with my friend tottenham who wants to stop people trying to make art i don't want an embargo on that i want an embargo of people encroaching on my territory trying to elevate themselves in the great you know hegemony of of society somehow stay off my turf creatives because again when i'm king you're not going to exist anymore you won't be able to identify as that at all I guess if society no longer rewards us creatives monetarily, then we have to use our little <laughs> terms and our little islands to distinguish ourselves. Of course, so we everybody can feel... wants recognition. You think about that. That's what we want more than happiness, more than money, more than anything. They want, even if it's not necessarily a purple ribbon, you know, or a gold star, it's to say, hey, I see you for what you are. But creatives are below the artists. I'm sorry. All, all everything I said about us being, you know, these awesome entities or whatever. I'm, you know, obviously I'm doing that somewhat facetiously. But then again, there has to be some strata in society and creatives. You're not an artist. Sorry. And it might just be semantics. And I'll close by recommending a different podcast, which is an episode of Slate's Decoder Ring, which was called The Storytelling Craze. And it talks about the rise of people describing themselves as storytellers and how that went from being a non-existent term to being everyone on their resume describing themselves as a storyteller. 
it's an interesting look into how that came to be. And John, you should live and be well and have a new term that rises up in the mid 2020s and the 2030s and 2040s that drive you even more crazy than you just evoked one right there, Brian. The notion of identifying as a storyteller has to rankle for anybody who's a proper writer, for sure. Yeah, that's that's another one that drives me crazy. Thanks a lot for leaving me and us with yet another notion to make me absolutely resentful towards the modern world. All right, Amir, final thought. Oh, well, I had a question. I guess the question, Mark, is the populism that you're interested in because you want the culture to recognize art or value art better, or you literally just want more of it? One of our favorite things on the Philosophy Podcast to talk about is we get back to Nietzsche every year and he likes to talk about the artistic Socrates and living your life as an art. And that is the way that I wish more people had the capacity. Now, if you're in a job that's wearing you down and making you feel like you're just trying to put bread on the table or whatever your favorite metaphor is or literal. Yeah. So I want art classes to teach people that art is not just a thing that you do in school and that you leave behind, but that is it should be a part in some way of everybody's life, however bad you feel like you are at it, even if it's not good enough for anyone else to hear, just sing or take pictures or whatever you want to do. Yeah. <laughs> Goodbye, listeners. Thank you for, I hope you're inspired to to create or, or, or not create, whatever whatever you took from this. I'm not really sure. So long. Thanks to all of you guys. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.